millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the History of Alchemy. My name is Travis Dell. And I'm Pete Coleman from the Bohemian Podcast. Today we're going to take a look at Isaac Newton. And this one's been a long time coming also. Um, he's a really interesting character within the history of alchemy. We've had a lot of requests for him. Yep. So this and is a needed show. <laughs> I, yeah, I think one thing that makes him interesting is we, we've taken a look at, at one or two guys that are after the golden age of alchemy. And Isaac Newton definitely falls in that category. So he was a good almost a century more than a century after the Golden Age of Alchemy, depending on when your cutoff date is. And yet, he was probably more of an alchemist than anything else. And that's, uh, that's a kind of a bold statement, but I absolutely stand by that. So um, he's a really interesting character, not just in, for alchemy's sake, but obviously, you know, most people probably know him as the English physicist, mathematician, and just kind of, you know, for his reputation as one of the most influential scientists of all time, basically, you know. And so, and so you're saying that at this point, this guy's got one foot in the al- alchemical world and another foot in what is called the, the uh, um, uh, learned profession of, of science at this point. Yeah. I mean, that's a good way to put it. I mean, he's, he's kind of one of the key figures, like a hero of the scientific revolution, and yet he has deep roots that, that reach into the occult and you know, all kinds of, kind of weird things, but also alchemy. In case you haven't heard of who he is... His scientific contributions include things like classical mechanics, infinitesimal calculus, contributions to optics. In fact, he has the first practical reflecting telescope, laws of motion. You might have heard of the, you know, Newton's three laws of motion. Universal gravitation, you know, the old myth of the apple falling on his head. <laughs> Empirical law of cooling, like he just, you know, tested how long it takes things to cool down. But actually, like, that was... You know, it's it's empirical. Like, it, he actually wrote that stuff down for maybe the first time. Um, he studied the speed of sound. And then a, a ton of other mathematics um, that's probably beyond me. But <laughs> So uh, to, to look at uh, the very early parts of Isaac Newton's life, we're going to take dive into what it was like for him to grow up in, uh, in England uh, around the time of the 17th century. So I want to make sure that we note this, that this is uh, a lot of this from Wikipedia. We'll be paraphrasing from this, but we'll throw, in, throw that in and make sure that we understand that. Uh, the Isaac Newton was born on Christmas Day on December 25th, 1642. And uh, he uh, was uh, in a, born in a hamlet in the county of Lincolnshire in England. And it, he was born three months after the death of his father, a very prosperous farmer, also known as Isaac Newton. So when we say Isaac Newton, really we say the second or, or junior in a lot of ways, yeah. not to confuse them both. Isaac Jr. Isaac Jr. Uh, but uh, he was also born prematurely. So uh, you can imagine at the time that the, the struggle that his family had uh, with a premature baby, um, uh, his mother Hannah reportedly said that she could fit, that he could have fit inside a small court uh, mug at the time. So I mean, we're talking really small. Amazing yeah. that he survived mm-hmm. uh, at that point. Um, so when he was three, his mother remarried and went to live with, the, with her new husband, the Reverend Barnabas Smith, leaving her son in the care of a maternal grandmother. 
Uh, the young Isaac Newton disliked his stepfather very much because, well, he was, he was kind of a rough guy. So later in life, Isaac Newton kind of put, put some pen to paper and talked about his early sins of his life, maybe to kind of clear his conscience. And one of the things that was kind of eye-opening was he really held, had a, this uh, anger towards his mother for marrying this, this stepfather, uh, Reverend Barnabas Smith, uh, who he really didn't like. And at the age of 19, so, you know, we, we've all done some, some pretty uh, tough stuff as, as a teenager to our parents. But uh, he actually said this at the age of 19. He threatened his father and mother uh, that he'd burn the house down with them in it. Um, so that's, <laughs> that's kind of rough. Uh, yeah, his, his mother had no, no children from her second marriage, that, uh, but he, he, re, he remained basically the child from, that would take care of her in, in a lot of respects. Uh, his, his mother was widowed uh, by a second time and attempted to make a farmer out of him. He hated farming passionately. This mm-hmm. wasn't his thing. All right, so um, he wanted something more, and I think he probably felt that he had the the tenacity to go get that education. He was motivated partly by desire for revenge against the schoolyard bully that uh, he came in contact with. It was at the time it became the second ranked student in the, in the school. The Cambridge psychologist uh, uh, Simon uh, Baron Cohen considered it fairly certain that that Newton had Asperger's syndrome. Wow, Travis, that's, that's kind of interesting. That is yeah. interesting. You know, again, if, if you're not familiar with Asperger's syndrome, it, it's a it's a condition where you can be very focused. It's maybe akin to autism. Is that Sheldon correct? Sheldon from Big Bang Theory. Yeah. Okay, that, that's, that's a perfect example. Very very difficult to make those kind of connections with other people, those human connections. But when he looked at numbers, he felt a confidence probably that uh, his world was surrounded by by numbers and logic. Yeah. Know? There's there's. You know, I, I remember watching a, a documentary from the BBC, and because there's one rumor that he was once engaged, but that's I'm not even sure if that's true or not. But the BBC made a big deal out of the rumors or the the probability that he was gay. Like they, like I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know if we'll ever. He he really liked one of the person he wrote to a lot about about alchemy and other things, especially about alchemy. And it was you know just recently when they were reading his kind of his diaries and his own notes that they discovered, man, he really liked this guy. And, you know, so they said, okay, so maybe that's why he was never married. Maybe that's why, maybe it's because he was just, he had some kind of Asperger's syndrome. Yeah, well, you know, maybe he was, you know, maybe yeah. he was, but at the time, you know, correspondence with, with either a male buddy or if you were a female with another female at the time, um, you, you read them with the 21st century eye, you're like, wow, this is very intimate. Uh, but that's how people did it back then. They, they, they wrote like, you know, really strong friendship level of, of commitments in their, in their posts. Uh, and uh, that w- wasn't really com- to be confused with any kind of other maybe sexual dalliances that came with it. But then again, he might have been. We just don't know. In 1661, he was admitted to Trinity College as kind of like a work-study role. Now, at that time, I, it's just important to note that the teachings were based on Aristotle. So this is in the middle of the kind of scientific revolution. But um, Newton kind of added newer thinkers like Descartes and Copernicus, Galileo, Kepler. Um, You know, we've done an episode on Kepler, for instance. So it's pretty interesting to see that this is already the next generation that is already teaching people like Kepler. So it definitely is, you know, a a big change in the times, which makes his delving into alchemy all that much more interesting. So he, in 1667, he returned to Cambridge as a fellow of Trinity, now, normally you would be required to be a priest, but sometimes you can kind of push that off indefinitely. Like that's how they kind of got, got right. around that. Later, he was elected for the Lucation chair, 
which you really should be a priest for that, but he actually got an exemption from Charles II. So that's kind of interesting to note. And so it's about this time when he started to um, write down what would become calculus, and there's there's kind of a there was a rival between Newton and Leibniz that actually got pretty ugly because Leibniz actually now it's believed that they both definitely came up with the idea independently and the notation is more akin to what Leibniz wrote down but Newton may have actually discovered it earlier and just not published till later and that's, what, and that's what we're talking a, about is infinitesimal calculus yeah. here so that's right. that's kind of what's accepted now is that they really both did come up with it independently no one stole from the other it's just so Isaac Newton then started getting involved in optics, and during this period, he investigated, he investigated the refraction of light, demonstrating that the multicolored spectrum produced by a prism could be recomposed into white light by a lens and a second prism. Modern scholarship believes that, this, uh, that Newton's analyst and re resynthesis of white light owes a debt to co corpuscular alchemy. Now, Travis, this, we've been doing this show for about a year now. I've never heard the term carpuscular alchemy. What does that yeah, mean? Yeah, so that's kind of getting close to chemistry. So it's, it's, um, it still comes from the elements theory, and it still comes from um, Aristotle in some way, but, but they were looking at what things can be broken down to, like its tiniest points. So Aristotle said that there's four elements, and some of them might be cold and moist or hot and warm. So some people interpreted that as saying what Aristotle means is the smallest component is actually mercury and sulfur. I can actually and that, start, which brings it into alchemy. I can actually so, start seeing that the, maybe the uh, the idea that he did have Asperger's to focus uh, so finely and fine tune on this information without having a lot of distractions. Uh, that when you talk about infinitesimal calculus, and now you're talking about the minutia, that's the tiniest bit and part of of the things that that can be considered a chemical yeah. thought. Uh, he was at the forefront of this. So uh, and able to probably put it into words, which is one of the first things that people have, have done on, on this type of level uh, to talk about the, the the idea of carpuscular alchemy. So, uh, yeah, I, I would have to say that he probably put it down pen to paper. Yeah, and, I, and, and made it and made it a source for people to look at from that point on. Mm -hmm. And then we also have his law of motions, and this is kind of interesting because he actually he built on what on Kepler's law of planetary motion. And then, you know, using his mathematical description of gravity, Newton basically put the last nail in the coffin of the old heliocentric model of the cosmos. So, you know, between Kepler and Isaac Newton, they could definitely prove for once and for all that, you know, in case anybody still had any doubt that this... The, Earth definitely revolves around the sun and so not that, the other that, way around. That, Travis, that's really interesting because we talked about Kepler on the Bohemian podcast and his, his, his focus on trying to get that information out to, to a world not ready really to hear about uh, branching away from heliocentric concepts and constructs. So when you look at Isaac Newton, he really fed a lot off of probably Kepler's um, information. Was it Newton that said he's the one that stands on the shoulder of giants? I think, or was that Einstein? Uh, it was you know, Newton, wasn't it? I don't it? know. I, I think it was know. Newton. But it, interesting that, that they played off of each other in that sense, oh, yeah. that they I learned mean, from, from he Kepler. He definitely was not in a vacuum, which is kind of how he's portrayed a lot. Like, he's like he figured it out of, by himself. Yeah, yeah. Like he's one of the big, which he is. I mean, he, he's, and in all the ways, he's a guy that put all this stuff together, same as Einstein. You know, he de definitely didn't exist in a vacuum. But, um, yeah, he's, he's the guy that had the insight to tie these related fields together. So now if we delve into what I would call his more interesting side. 
So that's this is more one, of his occult side one we're talking about. <laughs> so he was a very religious man. And one thing is, uh, I thought was really interesting is that, so he, he made a prediction. He very carefully read the Bible and wanted to predict when the end of the world was. Okay? Sounds pretty kooky, right? That's one of those, one of those people, you might say. <laughs> but he actually did that, and his estimate was that the world would not end until 2060, period. So all you other quacks, they're trying to figure out the end of the world. You know, mind you, this is 300 years ago, right? So it's like all you other quacks trying to figure out when the end of the world will be, don't worry. It won't be in your lifetime. Just go have a coffee. <laughs> so, so it was in 2012. We, we, we got through that okay. And Y2K, we got through yeah. that. So, you know, there's these quacks in every generation, <laughs> right. including Newton's. And so he said, look, it's not going to be until 2060, so we can all just like take a deep breath. I don't know about you, but I, I plan to be around by that time. Very, yeah. very old. But. So, so to quote, he says, This I mention not to assert when the time of the end shall be, but to put a stop to the rash conjectures of fanciful men who are frequently predicting the times of the end, and by doing so bring the sacred prophecies into discredit as often as their predictions fail. So he's like warning against false prophets. And, but yeah, you know, I, I do expect to see 2060, so... Yeah. <laughs> Pretty close call. Uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> but he said, you know, again, like that's, that's a minimum it's a minimum time we'll be around. That's just kind of interesting. Um, yeah, he, he, he definitely was religious, but not in any way that you would see the orthodox sense. So Isaac Newton's experiments with mercury to discover philosophical mercury, which uh, many alchemists believe to be the prima materia... Uh, really kind of led him to kind of give a litmus test to see if anybody else were th- was thinking along the same lines that he was through the alchemical process. Now, uh, don't get confused with the Philosopher's Stone on this one, all right? He would say, okay, you know what? Um, uh, you have this answer by alchemical method? Great. Let's put it to, to my test of uh, philosophical mercury. Yeah, philosophical mercury is like the first step. Right. In the process, right. When we say yeah. prima materia, it's, it's the first yep. thing you're going to do. So if, if you didn't really present this information to him in this manner, he would say, mm-hmm. well, you're probably not really following what yeah. I would follow. But, it, but if you got that far, then at least he would be like, okay, let's compare notes. A perfect example of this would be his writings on antimony, which is uh, the forming of a crystalline star that would kind of follow this process, alchemical process. Yeah. So he – I mean he was, he was also – he's famous for being a royal society member, you could say, and he – met and corresponded with Robert Boyle, and he wrote on quintessence, um, which is not, yeah, it's, it's part of the um, alchemical process, like to distill something down to quintessence, he dis- which quintessence itself is discussed over centuries by alchemists and philosophers. Now, to Newton, it was the form of everything that God used in creation. So you're distilling stuff back to its building blocks, basically. And since that time... So God used quintessence, and then since that time, nature had taken over, and quintessence is the basis of all matter. This might sound familiar to, if you've listened to our show, but, but Newton actually kind of wrote on this and, and kind of, you know, again, kind of crystallized the, the theory and, uh, you know, what he thought. And what I always think is very interesting is that Newton used the same alchemical language as the generations before him, and even went beyond that and invented his own system of notations and symbols to keep his recipes secret. So here's this guy in the Age of Enlightenment or the, the Scientific Revolution, and he did not clarify things or write something in a textbook for everyone to read. He even he obscured alchemical writings even more. So that's kind of interesting that he's you know well past the golden age so you'd think okay so we have some kind of chemical notation or you know something that any scientist can read no like he actually invented his own symbols 
So it's just you know something interesting I found. You know, Travis, at the, at the dawn of the Age of Enlightenment, it, it was interesting. You could see these these men that were grappling with what they were probably taught in in uh, theological studies that uh, they were kind of pushing back a little bit, saying, yeah, God's important with this, but by the way, science also has has a, a weightiness to it that we can start explaining the world around us uh, and started moving away, a little away from the church itself and their mandates. So we see this he with Isaac. He definitely did, yeah. Yeah, and we see this with Isaac Newton here. I mean, he's he really kind of follows the, the hermetic belief system in this and that, for instance, he believed that the earliest people's new true religion and that it was later corrupted. We've heard that before. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. a pretty big statement, mm-hmm. you know, uh, especially with the church saying, okay, I'm sorry, what was that? <laughs> you yeah. know, we, we corrupted that? Well, he kind of felt that way. Uh, therefore, going back to natural philosophy was more divine than going to the books you might find at his local library. The whole universe is God's temple, he would say. He said it was more res- he said he had more respect for the, the ancient Egyptians, Chaldeans, and Assyrians that later would follow in their cultures. For instance, geocentrism was a corruption of the truth. Copernicus and Kepler were therefore more pious than those who had come before them because they understood that the sun to be in the middle of everything. And he, like Kepler, saw that the sun represented God and putting God into the center of the universe as being more pious than putting the earth in the center. Yeah. Big statements here. So that's... Kepler thought the exact same thing. So Kepler always looked for theology when he looked at nature. And he said, well, if you believe in the Trinity, which Isaac Newton didn't even go that far, but Kepler was a Lutheran, pretty, pretty straight up. And he said that if you believe in the Trinity, you know, the earth, uh, the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, well, the Father is the focus. So therefore, the Son should be in the middle. The earth is somewhere on the outside, and the moon is... Newton would even, at least privately, he would suggest or kind of recommend that we should venerate and worship the sun, or also the moon and stars, as symbols of divinity. Like it's, it's you know, the way that a Catholic might venerate the image of a saint? He thought exactly in that kind of threat. Like, well, God created the sun, and it's majestic, and so don't worship it itself, but venerate it as a symbol of God, which is, that's, yeah. It's a walk in a tightrope. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's, he's a already... A heresy right he's, there, I think, He's past right? the Inquisition. He had nothing yeah. to, you know, really worry about in right. that sense, but... Um, and it is important to know that this was all private. I don't think, I mean, he never published anything like this. And, and a lot of the times when we read stuff about this, about Isaac Newton, you know, we didn't even, people didn't actually start looking at his personal journals until really like the 1970s. So it's like really recent that we even know this kind of stuff about him. And, and, and you, we, we talked about John D before in our, in our podcast with, with history of alchemy. Yeah. What was the connection with John D? Well, it's just kind of fun to contrast them because they were both kind of walking a tightrope in some ways but had totally different beliefs when it actually came down to it. So just privately absolute heretics but publicly walking that fine line, you know. So it is, yeah, I mean, they both kind of had utopian ideas and thought that the world could be a better place. It's just pretty interesting to kind of compare the two. To give you a number here, he wrote some 5,000 pages or some 650,000 words on alchemy. That puts all the rest of his writing to shame. So he was first and foremost to himself, if you ask him, what are you? And he gave you an honest answer, he would say he's an alchemist. Everything else kind of comes secondary to that, which just, yeah, if that doesn't blow your mind, it should. You know, Newton also carefully translated the work of Nicholas Flamel, uh, in which he was believed that Flamel had carefully hidden a recipe uh, in relief form on the Church of the Innocents of Paris. We talked about that, remember? Yes, so we did. If you want to hear about that, listen to our Nicholas Flamel episode. But you know, he also translated the 
Hermetic Emerald Tablet, which is something which we, we alluded to from the about. very first shows we had on this yep. podcast, right? Um, so he really, yeah, he had some strong, strong connections to alchemy that I think people overlook in, in lieu of his scientific uh, breakthroughs. Yeah, what's interesting is that he collected alchemical works like nobody else. I mean, I, I, when he was alive, he probably definitely had the biggest um, alchemical library in existence, period. So what's interesting is he didn't just collect these works and let them sit idle. He actually formalized kind of ideas and, and you know, crystallized some of these ideas that he had based off of them. So if you want to get a really good idea of the whole history of alchemy, just look at Isaac Newton's private works that were never published in his lifetime, but you could probably find them now. So I, I would have to say that people that have really looked at him just solely as – uh, a try-and-true um, uh, mathematician and science-centered man uh, would be somewhat surprised to find this al- alchemy sort of deal. And, and uh, So, you know, look into this, and, and I, you know, there's a, a paper done by the Georgia Institute of Technology uh, that kind of expounds upon this. Yeah, because if, if – it was an interesting paper I read because um, people might see, okay, so he had, he had two sides – to the coin, right? So he had this kind of Royal Society side where he published everything, and then he had this secret life of an alchemist, and it's that's even really simplistic. So there was this this paper that they made connections between alchemy. Newton really liked to write about economics, for instance, and of course he wrote on alchemy more than any other subject. And the the author of this paper says that. Um, his work at the Royal Mint, which we forgot to mention, by the way, but he, he worked at the Royal Mint and, and was, was uh, you know, catching counterfeiters and had really good ideas about economics and everything while at the Mint. And that that whole body of work was probably just a continuation of his alchemical works. So he studied officially in the Royal Mint. He actually studied the composition of coins and not just British coins, but, you know, all he could get his hands on. And was trying to figure out, OK, so how much gold's in here, how much silver's in here, you know, what other metals are in here. And so it's easy to say, okay, well, that was important for the British economy or for, for, for England. But actually, it's just, you know, according to this paper, and I think they make a pretty strong point, this was just an, a continuation of his alchemical works. Well, just, he, he probably had access that no other people had access to, to these precious metals. I mean, yeah. in one room. So I'm, I'm sure he could, could, could use that as a side note That's to kind of further his hobby. Kind right? of what the paper said is that he probably even took the position because it gave him access to, you know, gold and silver and, and, and it could further his experiments more than anything else. I know we're just scratching the surface in many ways with Isaac Newton. We might revisit him at some point later, but I think the main point I wanted to make is that it's not that he has two sides to a coin. It's not that he's just a uh, hero of the scientific revolution but that there is this whole other side to him, and that whole other side might actually be kind of the main side to Isaac Newton. If you want to understand the person, I would take a look at some of his alchemical works. All right. Well, thank you very much for listening. Thanks. Take care. You've been listening to the History of Alchemy podcast with Travis Dow and Pete Coleman. For more information about this episode, other episodes, and other information about alchemy, alchemists, and related subjects, visit historyofalchemy.com. Find us on iTunes, subscribe, review, and don't forget to rate us. We'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, ideas, and corrections to podcast at historyofalchemy.com or get in touch via Facebook on the History of Alchemy podcast page or Twitter at Alchemy Podcast. Tune in to our sister podcast all about the Czech Republic, Bohemican, which is also available on iTunes or on bohemican.com. Until next time on the History of Alchemy podcast, thank you for listening.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.